0: Hello and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City Employment and Civil Rights Law Firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Workplace Justice Podcast. I am your co-host, Mahir Nassar, and I'm joined with co-host Casey Wolnowski, and today, I am joined with a very accomplished journalist and TV personality. Today, I'm joined with a three-time Emmy Award-winning journalist, an author, a former executive producer at ABC News and CBS News, and a former producer at NBC News. And now, she's the president of a nonprofit organization called the Cure Alliance. She's a 40-year advocate for equality in the workplace and has provided so much in terms of fighting sexual harassment within the workplace. Thank you so much for joining us, Shelly Ross.
2: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Right. So, Shelly, tell us a little bit about what are you doing nowadays? And and I know that you're you're working with a nonprofit. So give us a little bit of the background on what's going on.
2: Well, it's exciting times for the Cure Alliance, uh, which is a nonprofit of about 300 research scientists in 20 different countries, all working on different cures for all different diseases. They share knowledge, and we work to break down barriers. They have great breakthroughs in the laboratory and then run into barriers to get to the patient's bedside. In March, 2020, every one of the scientists pivoted to work on treatments and cures for COVID. And 16 of them from lung specialty, critical care, diabetes, all shared knowledge and came up with a treatment for the most severe lung damage in COVID. And the clinical trial was successful. We're now raising money for phase three and we're making progress.
1: Wonderful. And so let's just kick it off. I want to know more about sexual harassment within the workplace. You know, you have spoken up on a number of occasions about very uncomfortable experiences. And so I want to kind of learn from you a little bit about that experience and what you like to share with our listeners today.
2: Well, my first sexual harassment experience was probably the most egregious. It was my first network job. And my interview was with the executive producer of The Tomorrow Show at NBC, and that executive producer was Roger Ailes, who is the same Roger Ailes that, forty years later, is the notorious Roger Ailes, who wound up at Fox News, and uh, was a broadcast mogul, and was taken down very dramatically. Roger Ailes made it a quid pro quo in my job interview, that the way I would get my job was to have what he called a sexual alliance. It was pretty creepy and I told him uh, I found the conversation embarrassing and tried to change the subject. I gave all signals that I wasn't interested in it and I couldn't deflect For years, I I thought, you know, why couldn't I deflect? And then I later learned that he was just a a very uh, experienced predator. But at the time, it was my first network job. And it was a job I really wanted. And I just said, I mean, being a journalist, he messed with the wrong girl. I went home. He told me to think about it. And I would literally spent this interview stare. I remember staring at my feet. I couldn't even make eye contact with him. I was so embarrassed. And I went home and he told me to think about it and or he would withdraw the offer. And I thought about it. And um, I just thought, no one's going to believe me. I don't even get that you know what I'm hearing. I, I knew what I was hearing. And I was clever enough to hook up a tape recorder and call him back and have the same, told him I had thought about it and uh, recorded the conversation, which I I really didn't tell anybody because I was in a two-party recording state. I was in California and it really wasn't legal. But I didn't care about legal. I cared about my career, and this was wrongdoing. And I made sure, which I hadn't done in the job interview, I made sure I asked him, am I the best candidate for this job? And he said, yes. He said, by far, he said, I see flashes of brilliance in you. And I thought, well, then. That should be enough. And he laughed. And I said, I don't even know you. I don't even know if, you know, I could never be involved with my boss and, and work actively. We don't even know each other. and I mean, we don't know if we would like each other. And he laughed and he said, oh, well, if it's just time to get to know me, you need. I'll give you all the time you need. And I said, "Well, how does that work? Do you come into my office once a week, once a month, and say, "Are you ready yet? And he laughed and thought I was so clever. And um, I had that on tape, which wasn't admissible or anything, but I knew I knew I said no. And he withdrew the the job offer. Now, the rest is I didn't really go to a lawyer when I was given the job offer. I actually asked a friend to recommend a lawyer because I was going to have to sign a contract, a boilerplate from NBC. I just asked for like a, a low level lawyer to inexpensively review my contract and take out any you know, language that wasn't good. So, I actually had to go back to this lawyer. The lawyer had gotten this boilerplate contract from Business Affairs, and I had to call her and say, The job offer has been withdrawn. And I said, I don't quite know what to do. Let me think about it. I just sort of want to get in bed and pull the covers over my head. And she went to the head of the law firm, and the head of the law firm, for whatever reason, whether it was thinking that it was on my behalf, or I suspect it's really sort of like, may have been, I can say this 40 years later, may have benefited him to have some leverage to smack over NBC. You can see a lawyer might like to do that, but without me being a part of this, he actually went to NBC to two top lawyers. And the three of them made a conference call to Roger Ailes and without my knowing, without my participation. And they literally, one of them start began and imagine Roger Ailes being on the end of three lawyers and saying, Roger, you have a boy-girl problem, and you've had a quid pro quo with a job candidate named Shelly Ross. And oddly enough, his response wasn't denial. It was, hey, guys, I'm single. So, In 1981, it's like, It was okay for him to do that, because he wasn't married. They explained that it wasn't okay. And he said, well, anyway, at the end of that conversation, decided that Roger had to apologize to me and convince me to take the job, which was the only way they thought it was the best solution. I got the job I wanted. I got an apology. Roger fell on his sword, and we all moved on. And in 1981, that's what happened.
3: Shelley, I wanted to ask you, you know, you have worked for decades, either with particular individuals or at the networks, which employed uh, individuals who have turned out to be some of the most notorious sexual harassment offenders that we can remember. And namely, I'm talking about... You may have not worked with them directly, but nevertheless, at the networks uh, regarding Roger Ailes, Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Chris Cuomo. And again, let me preface that I'm not suggesting that these are apples to apples comparisons. I- indeed. The allegations against, like, Matt Lauer has been accused of rape, if you read uh, Ronan Farrow's book, whereas Chris Cuomo has never been accused of that. So it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, but, you know, this has spanned decades. What is the one takeaway, or what are the, the multiple takeaways that you can say that you believe exist regarding your experiences and what you've seen over these decades with these networks and with these individuals?
2: Well, the takeaways are... It's prevalent, it's prevalent in every industry, but it's not about sex. These people can have sex as often as they want in their own ways, powerful, successful, or handsome in some cases. It's about the abuse of power. It's about dominance. I never felt Roger Ailes wanted to romance me. He wanted to dominate and control me. It was, it comes from an unhealthy place. There are millions of people who have affairs and even get married in the workplace, leave their spouses, you know, the in proximity. That, if that's meant to be, it's meant to be. I'm talking about something that is corrosive and ugly and threatening and It's going to happen to someone like me. At First I thought I'm the wrong one to mess with, but it it will happen to someone like me when a man is threatened by my independence, my creativity, my ideas, my certainty, my purpose, my mission in the workplace. It's all very threatening.
3: Now, Shelley, I guess it's sort of a follow-up question. What do you think can be done? And I agree with you. It's not just limited to television networks. I mean, what you're saying is is prevalent in all industries. But what do you think could be measures which could be taken which can potentially correct this, whether it be more women, say, in executive positions, or uh, whether it would be a environment which does not allow the fomentation of this kind of unchecked abuse of power. What do you think can be done to remedy this going forward?
2: In the immediate term, I think it has to be accountability, and accountability not just for the harasser, but for the enablers. In every case, that you can think of, they are enablers. The old saying, they all knew. Well, they did. And ABC News, which I love, where I spent 17 years of my life and career, I invested in my whole soul in ABC News. And they have a situation where women came forward and complained about an executive producer, someone I hired, I helped mentor, I believed them, And I actually wrote something, you know, at first I couldn't believe it. And I, I mean, I haven't been there in a while, but I wrote something, you know, when the harasser in the headlines is someone you adore, you have to stand up to it. And this is someone who was a dear friend of mine. And I'm sure Matt Lauer was a dear friend of many people at NBC.
3: Oh, I mean, absolutely. That I mean, you can still find it on YouTube, but that first day where it was I think Meredith Vieira learned that he was no longer going to be on the show. I mean, she was holding back tears and she really didn't know what to say because she admired him as a journalist, but she saw that the allegations were just so out of what she believed to be his character. And of course it was concluded to be true and accurate and to learn that this person that you had such high esteem for is not the person that you came to know.
2: Well, many people did know. Many people at NBC knew. And at ABC, it turns out that one of the accusers first went to George Stephanopoulos. She was his producer. And she went to George Stephanopoulos and said, I've had this harassment, this horrible experience happen with the executive producer. And I will say because the lawsuit is current and it's public knowledge that Michael Korn has been accused of harassing many women and he was marched out of the building at some point fired." fire. And it turns out, at least this, this woman says, that she went to George Stephanopoulos. George Stephanopoulos went right to HR. The head of HR is Tanya and said, I'm sending this woman, this accuser, to you. She came to me with this story about what Michael Korn did to her. I've told her she must report it to you, and she's going to. So Tanya Menton knew, and knew the details. In the middle of this, the head of communications, which is the network's PR person, happened to have a conversation, according to the reports I've read, have a conversation with the accuser and say, hmm, Do you really want to go to Tanya Menton? Because this is what happens when you report and it gets really messy and it, whatever she said, the woman never officially reported it. I think ABC needs to have, and I've been very public and vocal about this, needs to have an outside investigation not an internal investigation, but an outside investigation of the timeline of who knew what and when. And even the the new president at ABC News also called for this. And the Disney executives said, nah, you know what? We're not gonna have an outside investigation. I'm sorry, no one's been held accountable Michael Korn has been held accountable, but I think they have to go, they have to have the equivalent of a Warren Commission report on exactly who knew what and when. And if HR and head of communications, these are very high level, highly paid positions, then they have to be held accountable. They have to go. There should be zero tolerance so in the meantime, other women may have been put at risk, because he stayed there. I don't know that they have, but you're, you're just risking the safety of the women in the workplace. So the same thing happened. Roger Ailes had a very dramatic and humiliating fall from grace, and he, he died soon after. The walls crashed down on him, and I wasn't surprised. I knew Roger Ailes. I did go to work for Roger Ailes. I thought that I was the first, and I had taught him a lesson. And I thought I was the first and the last. I knew that Fox, when he created it, I knew it was sexist. I knew that the women were blonde and you know wore tank tops. And the anchors, you know, sat behind glass desks and showed off a lot of leg. So I I knew what he created there. I had no idea that what he was doing, that he was a sick sexual predator. Roger Ailes and I had reconnected after many years, and we had a 30-year friendship. And we had lunch a couple times a week, and I had no idea. We talked about his family, his kids, we talked about politics, we had fun, we, we gossiped. But when it all came down, everybody there knew, Fox News had paid off a bunch of women. One was like driven to a mental hospital. And that's when I just thought, this is way off the charts. And all the people who were involved, that was one woman tried to kill herself. Bill Shine is alleged to have driven her to the mental hospital. And Suzanne Scott was involved in the, in the settlements. These people remain there. Bill Shine briefly became the presidential press secretary. These people must be held accountable.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting perspective in terms of. I think one of the things you're saying. I don't want to mis- misquote you is that the foundation or the architecture that exists for enabling these individuals, which I will say is is very very tied financially and very lucrative for these companies to have a foundation which exists to keep accusers at bay and to to settle things and not let things get out of control. That until that structure. Is either removed or until it is adjusted so as to not enable, there isn't going to be any progress in fixing what has been rampant sexual harassment. And if I were to ask you, because a lot of these industries and a lot of these companies have come out and saying they're going to do that, right? If you were to read the tea leaves and you say you look ahead 10, 15, 20 years, are you optimistic that that's actually going to happen? Or do you think it's going to be a whole lot of lip service and it's going to be you know business as usual, just maybe it's going to be hidden a little better so as to disguise what's really going on.
2: Here's the irony. I don't think there will be the networks. I don't think they will have the money to cover this up. And I think it's a start, but there will be more women. There will be, hopefully. There is a swing of the pendulum right now. And Many people who have been held back for decades are suddenly finding a place in the workplace. Suddenly, you have women of color as head of a couple networks. You you just have change, but there's a woman of color who's president of ABC News, and she's the one who's told, no, you're not going to have an external investigation. That's going to change and if that doesn't, if those voices aren't heard and listened to, then I I think they're all done. There are our new business models bubbling up that are taking away revenue streams and that will continue. It it just, uh, things will burst out and You already see, you know, the the network share is so low now. It's still the one place, you know, the biggest place you can go to get an audience. But I mean, even Chris Cuomo was didn't get a million viewers a night. It's all changing. I can't predict what's going to be in twenty years. It may not be at all. You can see the the talent drain from. All the you know years of white male decisions and safe middle management choices; those middle managers are still there. So it'll be a while till that clears out.
3: And I share your sentiments. Uh, let me just say, I'm not an expert in journalism. I'm not an expert when it comes to uh, network television or news television. But what I can say is just from a general standpoint is from where people get their news nowadays is a lot different than it was five years ago 10 years ago 15 20 years ago Um, it's startling how many people get their news from a sources where it's going to be basically confirmation bias whatever the opinion they have they're going to find something that just Agrees with them, and then on the other hand, the number of people who get it from non-journalists, namely Facebook, Instagram, so on and so forth, those are fine platforms for what they are. But at the same time, I'm not sure that I would advise people that that is from where they should be getting their news. But in any event, I think that's a you know different topic for a different day. But I agree, it's going to be very interesting to see what the journalism landscape looks like in the future.
2: Well, I think that the root problem started with all white men. You had all white men as head of the networks and they all were immovable, unshakable and arrogant. And when you're untouchable, then mistakes happen as what happened with Dan Rather.
3: Do you think that diversity, if there's a greater diversity, and I mean, not only that with like, let's say, if there are more females who are, you know, running networks or, or who are in positions of you know, high level executive decision making, people who are not necessarily all white, but if you had people who are Asian, Hispanic, black, so on and so forth, do you think that would improve what we've seen in terms of sexual harassment that has been pervasive over decades?
2: Greatly. Diversifying the workplace is the only answer. You have different thoughts and different viewpoints. It makes everything better and just. And again, it's a, an issue of power. So once that the people who are hungry are there for the power are gone, then the harassment is gone. But let me also say, power corrupts and no matter what gender or race someone is, when they get to that position of power, they can abuse it. I've seen women abuse power, power does corrupt. And I think that's uh, in everybody's DNA. Once there's more equality, then if everybody has an equal shot, then that person doesn't have
3: the same hold on the power. Sure. And it may not manifest in the same way. You said that there's women who you've observed who have abused their power. I'm sure that there are people who have been non-white who have abused their power, but it may not manifest in the same way of sexual harassment. I would be inclined to say, and again, I'm not not a sociologist, but I'd be inclined to say that if you had a, a woman who's running a network I would presume that the instances of that woman being accused of sexually harassing subordinates is going to be less likely than, say, if you had a a man.
2: Right. I have been undermined by women in the workplace. And it's what assignments you get. It's what meetings you're invited to. It's people acknowledging your contribution. There are plenty of ways to abuse power.
3: And we've seen that quite a bit, actually. You know, what we see somewhat regularly is we see a a woman who ascends to a high level in in an organization, in a company, and it's almost as though, I don't know if it's necessarily explicitly told to her, but it's at least implicitly applied that there are few women who ascend to this level. And while there may not be a quota that exists, right, uh, on paper, the number of women that are going to get to this level... Are going to be few and you're one of the select few and if we're going to bring another woman on then it's probably to replace a woman who's already here so you better do your work and play the game and keep your eye out because other women are coming and because of that many women get very protective of their positions and i want to say almost enable the power structure that exists saying i've reached this level i'm not going to allow you To reach this level because it might mean I'm out the door. And we get a lot of, say for example, women who say the key offender of the gender discrimination, while it may have been the three or four high level executives, the person who really implemented it were the two or three women who were that high. And we see that actually fairly regularly.
2: I call them sister killers. (laughs) They are the women who got to the boardroom metaphorically first. And they're the first women in the boardroom and they enjoy being the only woman in the boardroom. I saw that the whole time. I wasn't like that. I hired so many women. I had to then go back and retrace and hire some men. I hired a lot of women. I hired more people of color than any other executive producer at ABC News and more people of color in senior positions. It's real easy to get the feed of job applicants of color and populate entry level. But the real key to me is populating your senior team, your go-to team. And I did that. I, I won't say that it was reciprocated at the end of my unique career were uh, sister killers. The other thing that happens is people made it easy because when you're a female boss, I completely identified with Hillary Clinton that whatever she did was going to be viewed as something else in politics and networking is not a lot different it's gossipy and and I think there probably are studies people perceive that I I raised my voice when I didn't if I would sit down and constructively go over a script with someone some people would walk out and say wow she was fantastic I I didn't expect anything like that they expected you know because other people had walked down and said, boy, did she rip me a new one. It's their perception. And I think it goes back to how healthy a person's relationship, it's very Freudian, but I've thought a lot about it, how healthy the person's relationship is with their own mother. There were so many things put on me that I could tell. I would hear from people and other executives trying to undermine me that I wasn't nurturing enough. Now, I mentored hundreds of people. I spent couch time, more couch time with my staff than any, you know, at my expense of my own sleep and my own family time. I would, not on a regular basis, but I would show somebody a different way to write a script they either got it or they didn't but when you have staff of hundreds and that should be your seniors but i was training seniors i was training people for a whole new approach and uh i think that was very nurturing in crises that no one knew about i helped somebody pay for their mother's funeral i took people through miscarriages nobody saw that But if I said to people, you can't have time off during sweeps, that's the new rule, Um, we're all in. This is like the weeks of the year that our ratings are determined and dictate our advertising revenue. Then I, I was tough. I made a rule that no vacation time during sweeps, because we're all in a four week period where you're rating, Nielsen rates your show, and then the rest of the year, your advertising rates are dictated by that. And you have to, you know what sweeps we are. So I had just taken over, this is the first sweeps of CBS, and one of the senior people came to me and said, our overnight guy, who we relied on for, you know, that's like one of the key jobs in a morning show is somebody who sees the news that's breaking overnight around the world. Our overnight guy told me that he has, during sweeps, he has put in for two overnights because he's turning 50 and he's scheduled for his age 50 first colonoscopy. And it's a cleanse, and it's a test that you take when you're 50. And doesn't seem
3: like an emergency surgery by any means.
2: No, a colonoscopy.
3: It was something he could schedule after this uh, period where, you know, everybody needed to be... I said back.
2: go back to him and get assurance that he's not symptomatic of anything. It really is just like, I'm turning 50 Like, we need a baseline. This is what you're supposed to do when you turn 50. And he came back and said, oh, I should have thought of this. And he said, it's scheduled for the following week out of sweeps. It's like, great. Well, this buzzed around the office that I'm so horrible that I made so-and-so reschedule a colonoscopy. At a network where Katie Couric was the anchor of the evening news and her husband died from colon cancer, and this is like her thing, this went around and again it's it was to undermine me. It wound up in the gossip columns and. Nobody bothered to call me or call the guy or call the network to find out this was just not a big deal story. This was not a damning story of me, but it was, you know, very public and it was amazing the people who were willing to believe that I would... Compromise or jeopardize someone's health, you know, the belief that I was that ambitious. It was pretty remarkable. There were gossip columns, um, industry gossip columns of meetings that I didn't participate in where I had meltdowns. I hung up the phone on people on calls I was never on. This became this mythology. Is bigger-than-life, which I think happens to women frequently, and I think happened to Hillary Clinton, and I think happened until there... I guess there's always going to be nasty people in the workplace. It, it's the same as the schoolyard. There's always going to be a bully, and that's where leadership comes in. I worked at places where... My bosses didn't have my back. Where my bosses literally could have said, you know, knock it off, stop the gossiping. In fact, because of the experiences that I had at ABC, when I first met with Les Moonbeds to take over the, the morning show at CBS, I walked into my job interview. With a, a uh, it was either Time or Newsweek, it was a cover story that was a, this slam of Katie Kirk with anonymous sources. And I said, I have an idea. I said, how does this happen? And he said, oh, you know, when I first took over, I had like the anchors of 60 Minutes slamming me publicly. And I said, well, how about if it becomes a firing offense to spread untrue malicious gossip to undermine a colleague, whatever level at CBS? And he sat back and he said, that's it. I said, you know, they have that in England. In England, you couldn't, you'd lose your job if you did this, pull this crap. And he thought about it and we had the whole job interview about the morning show, about everything. And at the end, he was so impressive, he repeated the conversation back to me about what I wanted to do and what I felt was gonna put the early show on the map. Point three was, We're going to explore making it a firing offense to undermine. And then went back to the CBS Morning Show idea and the CBS Morning Show idea. But that resonated with him. Unfortunately, he never did anything about it. Because the next thing I knew is, you know, I was in the gossip columns again with lies.
1: Yeah, well... I understand. Ms. Ross, it has been an absolute pleasure. Shelley, it's just been amazing to hear all of the experiences that you've had, unfortunate, but very educational for those that are listening so that they can understand how they can not only understand the power dynamics, the structures that exist, but also ways to hold institutions accountable. Co-host Casey Wanowski, thank you so much for taking out the time and all your questions. Uh, Once again, Shelley, thank you so much for taking out the time. I deeply appreciate it.
3: Your insight was very valuable.
1: I think you touched on a lot of different things that I felt like really touches upon the industry and your experiences. And you'll find a lot of listeners will be able to connect with those experiences, which I think is really what matters.
3: We haven't had somebody with your background and having worked in network television and to have your insight on that world in which there was, I mean rampant sexual harassment and abuse of power and to get your first hand eyewitness uh viewpoint on that i think is, is is an incredibly valuable insight which i think the listeners are going to be very interested to hear and i in fact i think that the viewership or the list the, the number of people who listen to this podcast is going to be probably one of the highest we've ever had
2: great well thank you for asking me
3: thank you for being our guest shelly thank you very much very much appreciate have a great weekend
0: Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at NassarLaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.